0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. David Brower, then executive director of the Sierra Club, gave a talk at Dartmouth College in 1965 on the threat of dams to Grand Canyon National Park. John Miles, a New Hampshire native who had not yet been to the American West, was flabbergasted. "What can I do?" he asked. Brower handed him a Sierra Club membership application, and he was hooked. His first big conservation issue being establishment of North Cascades National Park. After grad school at the University of Oregon, John landed in Bellingham, Washington, a month before the park was created. At Western Washington University, he was in on the founding of Huxley College of Environmental Studies, teaching environmental education, history, ethics, and literature, ultimately serving as dean of the college. He taught at Huxley for 44 years, climbing and hiking all over the West, especially in the North Cascades. Author and editor of several books, including Wilderness and National Parks, John served on the board of the National Parks Conservation Association, the Washington Forest Practices Board, and helped found and build the North Cascades Institute. Retired and now living near Taos, New Mexico, he continues to work for national parks, wilderness, and rewilding the earth. We start today by asking John about the John D. Dingell Jr. Conservation Management and Recreation Act, or what we've been referring to as simply the New Wilderness Bill.
1: Well, I'm really excited about it. I think it's an important uh, moment in conservation history. We've been struggling for quite a while to try to get a major public lands bill through Congress, and that wasn't going to happen. All the Republicans had complete control. Although I must say that in this case, this is a bipartisan bill, and they've been working on it for a number of years. And finally, the conditions seem to have been right for it to uh, actually pass. And it passed in the Senate by something like 92 to seven. So this is a real um, exciting moment in in this whole business. It's called the John Now. It's called the John D. Dingell Jr. Conservation Management and Recreation Act, and uh, Dante Pelosi put the the Dinkle name on it to recognize this longtime conservation conservationist who recently passed away, and it's really a huge a huge bill. It's got it's got many many things in it. It's like oh, 640 pages long. But one of the things that it has in it is that it protects uh, 1.3 million acres of wilderness. It adds to the national. The wilderness preservation system in a big way, including 273,000 acres down here in New Mexico. And also, there's a bunch of other issues that have been uh, boiling out there that this resolves somewhat. It re- withdraws something in the order of 370,000 acres of land from mining around two national parks, and those two national parks are Yellowstone and the North Cascades. I, I certainly know the North Cascades very well, and there was a proposal to put in an open pit mine in the upper reaches of the Mejau Valley right next to the North Cascades National Park and this is the kind of thing that uh, people have been working on for years and finally it's being resolved so that's what just one of the many things that's in the
0: bill what does it mean in New Mexico for you know talk a little bit about the 273,000 acres it's not all contiguous right so it's so what's the most important part of that for you
1: well uh, the most the most directly important part for, for us here is that right here in the Rio Grande del Norte National Monument, there are two wilderness units that will be uh, declared through this legislation. And those are a couple of the outstanding peaks that are here, the Cerro de la Uta and uh, up over by the San Antonio Mountain. So this adds a wilderness component to this new, relatively new national monument, the Rio Grande del Norte. And uh, then, of course, the Oregon Mountains, the, the largest uh, wilderness components are down in the Oregon Mountains, which are down on the southern border of New Mexico. And that was pretty contentious, the idea that the, that it, that the, that the Oregon Mountains National Monument would be established in the first place. And now that it's going to be protected, much of it as wilderness, it's a huge step forward in terms of
0: protecting some of the really beautiful landscapes here in, in New Mexico. How old is the National Monument status for that area?
1: Well, it was in 2013.
0: So it's very recent. The fight's been going oh. on, as I understand it, for a long time. Wow. So that is very, very recent. And then it just gets flipped over into wilderness in, in five years later, uh, potentially. So, yes. wow, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. Why is that area well, so important?
1: It's right down there on the border, for one thing. It's a spectacularly beautiful area. The, the mountains there are They're stark, but they're uh, steep and precipitous and and just beautiful. So it's an area that uh, has a lot of potential to attract tourism for that region of New Mexico. It's, uh, as I say, along the boundary and and is rugged enough that uh, I don't think they're going to build a wall through there. But anyway, it's it's an area that's got lots of uh, values. And it's uh, great that after all these years, it's finally uh, going to be protected. And of course, also, I think this points out that in these public land issues, they tend to be so contentious that it takes decades often for them to be achieved. And so that's nothing uh, unusual
0: in in respect to these New Mexico areas. What do you think? What's everybody saying? What's the buzz? Or what do you think personally the chances are that this is going to get signed?
1: Well, from what I read, uh, that they think it's going to be signed. And if it isn't signed, the uh, majorities were so overwhelming in both the Senate and the House, that it could probably be a veto override. But I don't think that, that that's likely. I think Trump will sign it. He's doing a lot of the damage on other fronts, but in something that's so overwhelmingly supported by bipartisan representatives in Congress. I don't think he can not uh, afford not to at this point.
0: Now, how did this happen? I mean, I know you follow the news like everybody else on the the more general issues at hand. How in the world did wilderness, which is usually uh, as contentious an issue as anything else when it's not the contentious issues we're dealing with now, why the heck did this turn out to be so bipartisan? And why, why in your mind aren't people talking about, hey, even if you don't care about wilderness or conservation or anything, look, these guys actually worked together. That seems like a huge news story, like breaking news. Well, it is. It really is. And and I think it's a
1: consequence in no small part of the fact that uh, Maria Cantwell, Senator Cantwell from the state of Washington, and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, Cantwell's a Democrat, Murkowski's a Republican, that they get the credit, as I understand it, for really pursuing this kind of a bipartisan agreement. And it's a compromise. I mean, there are things in it that conservationists don't like. Uh, And such as uh, the what's happening up there in Alaska and the the coastal plain and so on and so forth. But it's a it's a compromise. And so everybody gets a little something. And it's it's also been referred to by some as another sort of a park barrel bill. You know, there's something in it for almost everybody in the country. Conservation issues that have been sitting on the burner for so long that finally some action needed to be taken. For instance, one of them, one of the things that may have pushed this bill further than anything is the, the fact that the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which was established back in the 1960s to fund public land acquisition projects, whether they be from playgrounds and baseball diamonds in cities to wilderness areas, it, it ended last fall and they wanted to uh, renew it. And this is a bill that would uh, do that. And it would... Fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund permanently, as I understand it. What the Land and Water Conservation Fund does is it takes the money that is is acquired through offshore oil and gas leasing and it allocates it, or some of it, to the uh, recreation and conservation causes in this country. And so it's been a critically important part of the conservation story since the 1960s. So they really needed and wanted to renew this because almost every probably congressional district in the country has one or another project that they want to have funded. So that's one of the things I think that probably precipitated the final action to bring this to the floor and get it passed and hopefully to get it signed and put into effect.
0: I know everybody's in a state of emergency and everybody defines that a little bit differently on the edges, but in the core, I think we all feel like we're a little bit in a state of emergency. And I guess I can forgive that. Maybe it's unfair for me to bring it up and harp on this issue. But part of that state of emergency, I think that most people would agree on is that Congress can't get anything done. And here they've gotten something really done. So I went out and just refreshed uh, on Google, my memory of the places I, I, I think I saw one of them was the Washington Post article. Um, which says sweeping new conservation bill shows Congress is not completely broken after all. And it just strikes me as weird because I monitor social media for rewilding and I see all these headlines and they fly by so fast you sometimes forget. Was there ever a buzz about this? And so yes, there were the usual players like Washington Post and others that put the article out there. And I think the authors of those expected even, this is a really big deal. Just any demonstration whatsoever at this point in our in our history, political divisiveness and, and everything that's going on, that they can demonstrate any time that they've done anything together uh, at all. And, it, and this is a really big one. It's not like they worked on a little bill that was pretty inconsequential that anybody could agree on. This has got contentious things in it.
1: Well, I think one of the reasons that it may not be very high on many Americans' radars these days is there's so much political noise out there. <laughs> Every day the noise seems to stay at a very high volume relative to Trump and all the issues that are involved with, with him and his his scandals and so on and so forth. So it sort of flies under the news radar. There are going to be people whose, whose areas are, are going to be in one way or another conserved. One of the biggest victories from a conservation standpoint is over in Utah, where the politics of conservation are about as contentious as they are anywhere. So in Utah's Emory County, there are going to designate 661,000 acres of wilderness there, another 300,000 acres for a national recreation area in the San, it's called the San Rafael Recreation Area, and protect 63 miles of the Green River. These are things that those people over there in Utah have been battling for for decades. I mean, I'm new to the Southwest, relatively new, but when i lived up in the north pacific northwest i would read consistently about the the, the contentious battles that were going on in utah over trying to protect those, some of the those spectacular utah wildlands the red rock country
0: and so on and this bill does this
1: this is going to make the news cuz this is a this is i think a really big deal
0: and i hope that it's right when you when you when we see him sign this bill that that's going to be the turning point where the really big uh, fireworks go off because people should know about this. They should be extremely proud of it. I'm hoping it's a catalyst for a larger discussion that we've been craving for so long.
1: Well, one of the things that I think makes
0: this newsworthy is that this is a time when the Trump
1: administration is really uh, mounting a, quite a number of attacks on the public lands, um, whether it be oil and gas leasing all across the West here. Or, you know, the oil exploration on the North Slope up there in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Shrinking monuments. The deregula- yeah, and all the deregulation that's that's going on in, on the environmental front, reducing the monuments. I mean, that's the other side of the story over in Utah, that Bears Ears has been reduced by been like 80%. And and there's the uh, Grand Staircase Escalante has been reduced by about half, and that. That remains to be seen whether or not that actually is a, is a permanent deal. It's in court now and probably will be for some
0: time. But how many things do you think are sitting out there right now in that state of suspended animation that they're in the court system and the and our groups are just locking that stuff up for as long as they possibly can to weather this storm?
1: Well, I think there's a great a great many of the actions that have been taken that are held up that way. I mean, that. They may not be held up necessarily. I know for instance over there in Bears Ears, the BLM is going ahead and, and developing management plans for the reduced monument and uh, and so on. So I, I think there's quite a few of these things that are actually going to well. They've been significantly slowed down in terms of their impact on the land itself, and we'll see whether or not you know if if this administration is a one-term administration then I think that we will see a significant uh, overturning of of these rules and regulations and decisions that have been made overturning what was done before by the Obama administration, even back to the Clinton administration. So I think you're right. I think that's one of the tactics that that the uh, conservation community has had to use, not only the conservation community, but even the outdoor recreation community, for instance, led by the, uh, the, outdoor industry association and, and companies like patagonia that have filed lawsuits in some of these cases because everyone recognizes that in fact the long-term uh, health of the economies of many of these western areas that are in contention will depend uh, will will benefit greatly over the long term from from outdoor recreation more so than from a resource extraction whether it be uranium or coal or whatever the case might be that these the extractors are trying to achieve.
0: We call you lovingly uh, the board and staff at Rewilding John Scholar. And there's, you've earned that title because you get books shipped to you in giant boxes of scores of books at a time to review and uh, to report on at rewilding.org. I've been in your library and there's, there's a thing going on with you. So I always look to people like you if if anybody can sort out patterns of things that are happening, things that are going on, it's the people who are really sticking to putting your ear to the ground as you do. I mean, you read an awful lot of stuff. I don't know how you get through it all and review it all. And it's a mystery, to, I think, to all of us. But we love that you're there. And that's one of the big things that you do for rewilding. What are the patterns that you're seeing in terms of conservation, in terms of current Political situation. I know I'm throwing something at you that's weird because this is a complete outlier. Like, there's no pattern to what we're experiencing right now, but it is part of a pattern. If you just look at what we're doing now, it's like crazy. <laughs> but do you think there's a groundswell building up here that is going to be, you know, how the pendulum always swings back almost exactly 100% the way the other direction? Well, this is certainly going to happen mm-hmm. at some point. It's going to swing back. What do you think? In our future?
1: Well, here's the story from my my perspective, is that each time that there is an assault on public lands, going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, then conservationists emerge in response. I mean, for instance, this was very obvious in the 1980s during the Reagan administration, when there, there was a Secretary of Interior Watt uh, at the time, who, who and at that time, the, the regular administration was trying to increase the extraction of oil and gas and other things from the, the environment. Uh, and what happened was, of course, the conservation and environmental community grew ever more uh, large and active in response. Now, we're only two years into the current uh, administration here, which is probably mounting an assault on public lands that is in many respects worse even than Reagan or, or or some of the other predecessors than Bush, certainly. And it's maybe still too early to tell for sure whether or not the similar reaction in the in the community will occur, but I think it will. I mean, I think what's going to happen, we get, when things are good, let's say they were they were good during the Jimmy Carter administration. And then people got a little bit complacent. And then the Reagan administration came along and they started to do all kinds of things to the public land system that the, the conservation community didn't like. And it, and it may have taken four, five, six years for that to response to occur, but it did. And then we got into the, uh, the Clinton years, which were pretty good. And uh, there was more once again maybe a little bit more complacency amongst the conservationists and then the same thing with the bush administration they started to tackle the some of the you know more oil and gas exploration and leasing and so on and so forth and then came obama and maybe a little bit of complacency again but here we are so but well, that's a pattern i mean you asked about a pattern i see that pattern going way back in in american history and mm-hmm. i expect that that's going to occur again that it Indeed, we're going to see a, a kind of a an uprising, a revitalization, and maybe this public lands bill is an indicator of that, where people are going to begin to recognize, hey, those are those are my lands out there. I'm an owner of the of the public domain. There's yeah, there's 644 million acres in the United States that I am an owner of, that I hold in common with the other people in this country, and I don't want. These people who are bent only on extracting wealth from that land to overwhelm my, my, uh, my values and, and, and my interests in those public
0: lands. So I think that's what's going to happen. The whole time you're talking, I'm thinking about coyotes. When biologists first discovered that we, when we put pressure on coyotes, they double their litter sizes, it, it makes me feel like you're, you're kind of describing us as coyotes. And when things are good, the litter sizes drop. And when they're bad, the litter sizes double or triple. And, and that feels good to me. Uh, in a weird way, though, but I don't like the complacency thing. I don't want this to wear off. In fact, we can't really afford for this time for it to wear off like it did in the good years for the complacency to come back because we're we're on a longer mission that has absolutely no consideration for um the length of an administration's reign um it's a much uh more dire and urgent situation i mean maybe i'm not seeing the pattern but am i correct are people correct when they say we're in the most dire situation that we have ever been in before it's not like the old fights It's not like the times where all we had to worry about was wilderness. Now we're talking about wilderness juxtaposed with its ability to store carbon because we're all freaking out about uh, about climate change. And it's not just wilderness in terms of cores and buffers and corridors for the ability for wildlife to move around to protect biodiversity. For biodiversity's sake, we also have to lace every conversation with how it's going to affect um, in a In any good positive way, climate change now we 're in this situation. Does that affect the pattern at all? Do you see us building something that can be sustained this time and that that complacency doesn 't come back in because the next administration won 't outlive the the dire consequences that scientists are saying we 're facing and we 're already facing for climate change
1: Well, I think you make an ex- excellent point there really yeah there is this pattern that I mentioned, but truly, we are in a different situation right now. I mean, we've never faced anything quite like the, in many ways, I think, existential crisis of climate change because it is just going to affect virtually everything in in you know in modern life. I mean, one of the, for instance, one of the things that I see relative to all these migrations across the world now is changing climate trying to change the ability of the planet in large areas to support the populations that live there. And not only that, but, you know, I started as a a college teacher back in the 19 late 1960s, early 1970s talking about human population and over the 45 or so years that I talked about it, the human population more than doubled. So not only do we have climate change, but we have an overwhelmingly huge and, rapidly growing global population so those issues are huge hard to deal with because you know for many people who go about their daily lives making making a living and raising their kids and this sort of thing that's those global issues are almost too large to even think about let alone decide what you can do about it and so yeah it's a different time
0: It's odd that there are some places that we fought really hard to protect that got protected specifically for species that relied on that area. And we thought, yay, we got it protected. This species is covered. But we never thought about climate change and the fact that it was going to change the area that we protected such that that species couldn't live in there anymore and would need to move to an unprotected area to have a chance at the same habitat that they've come to rely on through evolution in millions of years. It used to be a static environment. We need this wilderness area or this connectivity or whatever, Uh, we need this protected because there's a species here that relies very specifically on this area. And then now the area is shifting. The climate is different, the weather patterns are different and it's making it very difficult for that species we tried so hard to protect to live there anymore. Well, you
1: know, you talk about all this reading that I get to do. And in fact, I'd have to say that uh, the idea of a static environment has gone away, went away in in the scientific world, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, mm. because uh, ecologists began to recognize that there's really no steady state. Everything is constantly in, chain, in, in flux for one reason or another, you know, mm-hmm. trees grow, die and wildfires come through, various disturbances occur, so it's a constant process of change. But I think in this case, what I'm seeing now is that, there, in at least in the scientific literature, and in some of the what you might call general environmental literature that I see, people are writing more and more about the consequences of the way in which we have constructed our society and our civilization. For instance, uh, one of the books... Um, that I read this last fall as, as part of my judging role in the National Outdoor Book Awards is uh, uh, a uh, book titled Rising. And in that, it's about sea level rise. And one of the points that she, that she makes in that book is that we have sort of like hardened a lot of the seashores. And so uh, there's no place for plants and animals that live along the coast to move inland. They because they're blocked by you know, development, seawalls, all that kind of thing. A lot of the critters that need to uh, live uh, in a cooler climate as the climate warms, they could maybe like pipas go up the mountain, but up to the point where there's no further elevation gain to go and they're done. I mean, it, there's potential there. And there's just a lot of recognition of this across the thoughtful community that is is wrestling with okay. How do we how do we adapt? It doesn't look like we're going to be able to stop climate change and global warming, and it, 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 because we're not responding to the challenge across the world. So how are we going to adapt to it? And not only we, but how are all of the uh, other organisms that we share the environment with going to adapt to it? And so this is a whole new conversation that's beginning to get more and more attention uh, among writers and scientists and Maybe not yet politicians, but I'm sure sooner or later that will probably come.
0: Amid all of these things, what is it that gives you hope right now? What are you uh, hopeful about?
1: Well, I, I think that um, relative to public lands, which is what we started to talk about in the first place, was that the more of us there are, uh, there's not make nobody's making any more land. So what we need to do is we need to conserve and preserve more of the land that has yet to be you know, in a healthy condition that hasn't been paved over or maybe severely overgrazed or impacted by oil and gas leasing, that kind of thing. And I think that we started out talking about the, the Dingle Conservation Management and Recreation Act and the bipartisan support for it. And to me, that's a very hopeful sign that in in the United States here, at least, we have this long history of conservation, of of the recognition that we need to protect the natural world upon which we depend. In fact, the conservation movement really got a big start back in the late 19th century, when people recognized that we were cutting our forests down at such a rapid rate, that if we didn't do something to slow it down, we were going to be in trouble. We were not going to have the kind of water supplies that we needed, and we wouldn't have a timber supply. Maybe we would we could have a, a, a timber crisis, where why we didn't have those resources anymore. And This country was trying to expand and grow, and uh, it needed a, a long-term, sustained supply of natural resources in order to do so. So the conservation movement began, and I think that. It's continued with ups and downs over for over a century, and this event that's happening with this conservation act that's just going through, through, has just gone through Congress is an indication that people are recognizing that we need to act in order to uh, enjoy a, a positive and sustainable future on the land.
0: John, I know we're going to have a lot of conversations we do anyway, but I'd like to have them more in public like this because you're an inspiration and a, a constant fount of information historically and, and elsewise. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on Ray, Rewilding Earth today.
1: Well, thank you. And I'm happy to do it anytime.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.